You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, in this morning's sermon, I want to do something uh, a little bit different. Uh, At various points, uh, I'm going to speak especially to the children of this church. So if you're a kid, if you're in Sunday school, all the way up through kind of you know, high school or so forth. Uh, I want you to listen especially well. So, so kids, I want you to, to pay attention. There's going to be a few times where I'm going to point some things out and I'll maybe ask a question and I want you to think about it. And at the end of the sermon, I'm going to say something to you specifically. So if you're, uh, if you're a child, uh, listen especially carefully uh, this morning. So today we come to the final plague, the final wonder that God does in judgment upon Egypt. And you might wonder, why did the pastors choose to divide the sermons in this way? Like we made Pastor Jonathan do nine plagues in one sermon, and then Pastor Joe gets to do one plague in one sermon, and that doesn't seem fair. Wouldn't it make more sense to have divided them like in half and five and five? Well, the reason that we divided it this way is because that's the way the book of Exodus wants to think about these plagues. The, the final plague is set apart from the other nine, and this morning we want to focus on why is it different. So first, let's review some facts about the first nine plagues. We've talked before about the importance of literary structure, the way that the Bible is put together matters. And if you read Exodus 7 through 10 carefully, you'll notice that the nine plagues are actually structured in three cycles of three. So if you were to go back and look, in plagues one, four, and seven, God tells Moses to rise up early in the morning and go to Pharaoh and warn him. So in one, four, and seven, that's the first in each cycle, go early in the morning and warn him. And then in plagues two, five, and eight, Yahweh tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and warn him. There's no mention of morning. It's just go, but it's the same structure. And then in plagues three, six, and nine, there's no warning. Yahweh simply tells Moses or Aaron to do something, usually with the staff, although in the middle one, it's actually uh, take some soot and throw it up in the air. And so they do something uh, to, to bring about the plague. Stretch out your staff, throw soot in the air, stretch out your hand. And so there's a cycle to these plagues. Go warn Pharaoh in the morning. Go warn Pharaoh again. No warning, just judgment. That's the three-part cycle. And then as Pastor Jonathan noted last week, there's also a progression in these signs and judgment. These are, these are specific. There's precision in what Yahweh is doing. There's a, a battle of the gods happening. On one side, you have Yahweh, and under him, you have Moses, and under him, you have Aaron, and on the other side, you have the gods of Egypt, and under them, you have Pharaoh, and under him, you have the magicians. And so in the first cycle, Nile turning to blood, the frogs, the gnats, it's Aaron and the magicians who are front and center. Aaron's doing stuff, it's his staff that's being used, and it's the magicians. Um, The Egyptian sorcerers, they can mimic plagues one and two, and then they get to three, and they can't do it. In the second cycle, it's Moses and Aaron together versus Pharaoh and the magicians, but the magicians are actually knocked out at this point. In Plague 5, it says they couldn't stand up because of the boils, um, so they could no longer stand before Moses. And then in the final cycle, Aaron fades to the background, and it's just Moses versus Pharaoh. 
And so you can feel, what you're supposed to feel as you walk through this three, these, these cycles is an escalation. It's getting more serious. It's getting more grave, which is why, as Pastor Jonathan noted, in that final cycle, um, Moses, Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, this is going to be on you. It's coming, all of this is coming on you. And so it's, it's now, it's, it's coming to a head. And then there's also a progression as the plagues move. They start in the waters of the Nile, right? The Nile turns to blood. And then think about the progression. You get from, from waters, um, the plague moves to the ground because frogs are amphibious. It goes, the, the water animal can become the land animal. And so it comes on and there's a plague of frogs. And then uh, from the ground... Uh, plague three is when Aaron strikes the dust of the ground. So he strikes the ground, and then all of a sudden gnats erupt. And from the ground, we move to the air with swarms of flies. And then from the flies to animal flesh, the livestock die. And then from animal flesh to human flesh, there's blood, boils and sores on the skin. And then from flesh, we move to the sky, thunder, hail, fire, fall on Egypt. And then again to the sky as locusts swarm from the east to the west. And then finally, the plagues reach all the way up to the heavens as God turns off the light in Egypt and plunges them into a darkness that you can actually feel. And so from the water to the ground, from the ground to the air, from the air to the flesh, from the flesh to the sky, from the sky, all the way to the heavens, the plagues are moving and consuming more and more of Egypt. This is a total judgment. That's the escalation. As Pastor Jonathan said, this is not just, a, this is not about persuasion. God says over and over, he's not going to listen. He's not going to listen. This is about revelation. This is Yahweh showing his mighty power over Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. And then last thing by way of reminder, Pastor Jonathan mentioned this precision, okay? Multiple times in plague four with the flies, it's eight, 22, and 23. Plague five with the livestock, nine, verse four. Plague seven with the hail, nine, 26. And plague nine with the darkness, 10, 23. We're told that God made a distinction between the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen where the Hebrews dwelt. There's no flies in Goshen, no dead livestock in Goshen, no hail in Goshen, no darkness in Goshen. And I think probably there's no boils on the Hebrews and there's no locusts on their crops. It doesn't say it explicitly, but I think that's the implication. God makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt. So remember those three points as we move forward. Number one, the plagues are escalating. Number two, it's a total judgment from the waters to the heavens. And number three, God is making a distinction between Israel and Egypt. And so now we come to today's passage. And what we're going to see is that the final plague is both the same and it's different. This is where I need the kids to pay attention and think about this. I want you to pay attention as we talk about this final plague and think about where it's the same and where it's different. Where is it the same and where it's different? So we're going to walk through chapter 11 and chapter 12 in four steps, thinking, is it the same or is it different? So first, in chapter 11, Yahweh tells Moses what he's about to do. 11 verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handbill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There will be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again, but... Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. 
And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. So here's the question. Is that the same or is it different from what we've seen before? Is it the same or is it different? And the answer is, I think it's the same. God is still making a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Egypt is going to cry when their firstborns die, but there's not even a dog that's going to growl at anybody in Israel. Wherever the people of Israel, there's no death. There's no destruction. God is making a distinction. That same precision from the earlier ones is, is here. And then second, this is also the same because this is total war. This is total judgment as everything has been escalating, right? Everything has been escalated. Crops have died. Livestock have died. But now something even more. God's taking it to another level. This is war on the firstborn. And we'll talk more perhaps about this next week. But the attack on the firstborn, why is that so significant? Well, um, back in chapter 4, God had said, Israel's my firstborn son. Let him, let him go or I'm going to kill your firstborn son. And the firstborn son in the scriptures represents the family and the nation's hope for the future. And so when God assaults is Egypt's firstborn sons, when, when he assaults the firstborn, he's assaulting the future of the nation. So he's started at the water and he's built all the way up to the heavens. And now he says, I'm attacking the future. I'm taking out your future. I'm cutting off your future. And so in both of these ways, this final plague is the same as the earlier ones. It's one more step in the total war, and God is still making a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now, before moving to the second step, I want to mention a structure, another structural thing about chapter 12, and then this is, includes into 13. Um, as you, if you read chapter 12, it feels a little repetitive. So um, in chapter 12... Um, you get the instructions about the Passover at the beginning in 12.1 to, to, to 7 or 12.1 to 13. And then he mentions the Feast of Unleavened Bread in, in chapter 14. Um, and then in 21, you get uh, the Passover meal instructions. And then the actual thing happens. And then it comes back around and you get more stuff about the Passover at the end of chapter 12, verse 43, institution of the Passover. And you think, didn't we already do this? We, we just did all of this. Why are we doing it again? And then in chapter 13, we get more about the firstborn and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And you're going, didn't we already do this? Well, here's one of the things I want us to learn as we're reading our Bibles. When you see the Bible repeating itself like this, don't just think, oh man, oops, right? He just said the same thing again. You should think, ah, oh, there, maybe there's a purpose. And one of the things you'll notice, when I, when I see that duplication pretty close together, like Passover meal instructions here, and then Passover meal instructions again, I start to think, hey, remember those chiasms? Remember those steps where we start here and we move up to the middle and we come back down? I start thinking maybe there's something there. And so let's look. Well, if we start from the Passover meal instructions in 1221 to 28, and then we compare that in 1243 and 50. We go, okay, those match. Let's move back a step from the first one and forward a step from the second one. And what do we have? Oh, look, in 1214 to 20, it's all about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What is it? What's going on in chapter 13? Oh, look again, it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so we've got Passover meal itself, then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then now let's move out one more step. What's happening in 12.1 to 13? It's all about the plague on the firstborn. The firstborn is front and center. God's going to kill the firstborn. He's going to pass over the firstborn. What about is going, what's going on in 13.11 to 16? Again, firstborn. 
And so, again, we have that structure where on both ends we go from the firstborn to the unleavened bread to the Passover meal itself, and then you go, okay, well, then what's in the middle? And unsurprisingly, what's in the middle is the actual 10th plague and the Exodus itself. That's what the center of that passage is. So that's just some structural. That's why, that's why it's going to feel repetitive if you walk through it. So now let's go to the second step. We've had a warning. Pharaoh doesn't listen to the warning. In chapter 12, Yahweh gives Moses and Aaron instructions about what the people are to do on the night when the destroyer, the angel of death, passes through Egypt. And they're to take a spotless lamb and they're to kill it in the evening. It's very specific. It has to be a spotless lamb. You got to kill it in the evening. And then they're to take some of the blood and they're supposed to put it on the doorstops, the doorposts, excuse me. And then they're to roast the lamb. It's very specific again. You are not to boil it. Do not boil the lamb. Roast it. And you're to eat it with unleavened bread, not leavened bread, and bitter herbs. And you're, ha- and you're supposed to have your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Anything left over after the meal, you don't eat it all. You don't store it and save it for leftovers. This isn't like Thanksgiving. You burn it. It all needs to be burned up. Now, why is that? Look in Exodus 12, 11 to 13. Here's why. Why are we doing all of this instructions? It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So notice that. God is going to pass through the land of Egypt and kill all the firstborn, but if there's blood, he'll pass over. Pass through, pass over. That's the key difference. So here's the question. Is this the same or different? Now, I think at this point, this is fundamentally different. Earlier, when God made a distinction in those earlier plagues, he just did it. No flies, no hail, no darkness in Goshen. Just, he just did it. God's people didn't have to do a thing. God just made a distinction between the people. But here, they have to do something or else God won't make a distinction. This difference is Crucial. It's so important to get this. The angel of death is coming for all the firstborn, every last one of them, Egyptian and Hebrew. He's coming for all of them. Egyptians, Hebrews, livestock, rich people, poor people, slaves, free, Pharaoh, the guy in the dungeon, he's coming for them. Any firstborn, is com- is, he's coming for them unless... You do something to protect yourself and your house. You have to put blood on your door in order to be safe from the angel of death. This is different. Now, third. So first is the same. God's going to make a distinction. But then we get another step. You you have to do something to make the distinction. Third, because of this event, Yahweh establishes a feast in Israel for all generations. 12.14, this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Now, is this the same or different? Again, it's different. There's no feast to remember the frogs, 
right? There's no feast to remember the boils. That would be an interesting feast, perhaps. Remember that time that God struck our enemies with boils? Let's all eat some candy or something. But for this last plague, God wants them to set apart a special time every single year to do the feast of unleavened bread. And then a special day to mark Passover. So each year, each year, God's people are to reenact this special night. They're supposed to pretend like they're back in Egypt and the angel of death is coming. And they're supposed to do things in order to remind them of that night. And so throughout their generations, so hundreds of years later, people who weren't even there are going to pretending like they're there. What are they going to do? They're going to eat unleavened bread for seven days. Leavened bread is good bread. Okay, it's good bread. The leaven makes it rise so it's nice and fluffy, but they're supposed to have unleavened bread to remind them that they did all of this in a hurry. They had to hurry to get ready for the exodus. They're going to have bitter herbs with their meal. Not, it's not going to taste good. It's going to taste bitter. Why? Because it's reminding them of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. And they're going to put blood on the doorposts to remind them of that day that the death angel came and passed over their houses because he saw the blood of the spotless lamb. And then they're going to roast the lamb that night, not boil it. They're not going to break any of its bones. It's very specific. Don't you break any of these bones. And they must burn the leftovers. And this is to represent that this whole animal is consecrated to the Lord and is consecrating the people and that you burn it up like it's a burnt offering to God. It's not just leftovers. And then later in chapter 12, God tells them that only those who are circumcised can join this meal. This is in 1243. This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. Every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you've circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. Notice the repetition here. Um, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn, your, sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, like if he wants to join, let all his males be circumcised first. Then he can come near. An outsider's not allowed in. He has to show, if you want to participate in the Passover, you've got to be all in with Yahweh. In the same way that Zipporah had to circumcise Gershom when Moses hadn't done it yet because, and God was angry and was coming for him. Why? Because Moses needed to say, I'm all in. I'm a part of, I'm with Yahweh. I'm with his people. I'm not straddling the fence anymore. So you have to be all in. And then finally, here's the fourth step. After God strikes the firstborn of Egypt, the Egyptians cry out in wailing and lamentation. Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron in the middle of the night, and he sends them away immediately. The people of Israel throw their belongings over their shoulders, and they leave in haste. They hustle, and they journey from Egypt to Succoth as quickly as possible. And so the question is, is this the same or different than the earlier plagues? Is it the same or the different? And the answer is it's different. It's different. Earlier, Pharaoh's heart was hardened so he wouldn't let the people go. Those plagues were about showing Pharaoh the power of God, as Pastor Jonathan said last week. But this plague is more than just showing God's power. This plague is about compelling Pharaoh to obey Yahweh with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. This is different. Now, and there are two other interesting things worth noting here. 
Did you notice that bit where it says in uh, chapter 12 that when they leave, they ask the Egyptians for gold and silver and clothing and God gives them favor in their sight and they give them all of their stuff so that Israel plunders the Egyptians. Now, here's, this is why, here's why this is important. Um, this is the fulfillment of an important thread that goes all the way back to chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 19 to 22, this is when Moses is on the mountain with Yahweh. Um, um, Yahweh promises Moses, Israel is going to plunder the Egyptians in this way. I mean, he promises it in chapter 3. And then in chapter 11, verse 2 and 3, we didn't read this, but this is today's passage. Um, God says to Moses, Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Um, so he, he promises it back in chapter 3, and then he commands the people to do it in chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, 30 through 36, here's the important thing. God fulfills his promise through their obedience. So he promises it, then he commands it, and then he fulfills the promise through their obedience. Does that make sense? Promise, command, fulfilled through obedience. And now here's the thing I want to flag. This is for future, okay? I'm highlighting it here because it's going to come back up. Why does God do this? You should ask yourself, what's this for? Does he just want the women of Israel to have some nice clothes for their journey, right? Like, hey, I just killed a bunch of people, but you guys got some nice earrings. Is that what this is? about. I went to Egypt, all I got was this shirt, right? Um, is there something more going on here with the plunder? I want you to think about this, and we're going to come back to that later in the book of Exodus. The second interesting thing is found in 1237 to 38. Look there with me. In 1237 to 28, it says this, and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So notice that. It's not just the Hebrews who leave Egypt. Who leave Egypt. A mixed multitude. I think that means there's Egyptians and then there maybe are other ethnic groups who are dwelling in Egypt, like maybe other slave peoples. Um, who are living in Egypt, and they join them, and they go out with them in the Exodus. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. So summarize what we've seen. Okay, this is, remember, same or different. Kids, remember, we got to think, where's it the same and where's it different? First, when God tells Moses what he's about to do in sending the destroyer to pass through Egypt and strike the firstborn, he also, like with the other plague, says, I'm going to make a distinction between Israel and Egypt. That's the same. That's the same. But there are three differences between this final plague and the earlier ones. First, the people have to do something to distinguish themselves from the Egyptians. Blood on the doorpost or the angel of death will rip apart your house. God's total war on sin will come to your house unless there's blood. Second, God establishes a feast a memorial day for all time because of this act of judgment and the people's response. Every year, the people will relive and reenact this final plague when God passed through Egypt in judgment and passed over Israel in mercy. 
And then third, unlike the earlier plagues, this plague doesn't just reveal God's power, it compels Pharaoh and the Egyptians to obey. And so they send the people out in haste with Egyptian gold in their pockets and Egyptian earrings on their ears and with a mixed multitude along with them. That's what we've seen. One way it's the same, three ways it's different. Now, here's what I want to do. This passage speaks to us. It speaks to everybody in this room. This passage speaks to every one of you. And so I'm going to speak to every one of you, okay? On behalf of God, I want to speak to every one of you. And I have three groups in particular, okay? Number one are the kids. So kids, I've been, I told you to pay attention because I was going to say something to you. I'm going to talk to you. And then second, I want to talk to those who aren't Christians. I don't know if there are any in here, but if there aren't, if you're checking it out, if you're just curious, I want to say something to you. This passage is speaking to you. And then third, I want to speak to this church. Okay, so the kids, outsiders, and to the church. Kids, think about this. Okay, this is really important. And parents, you listen to because you can talk later about it. God spared the people of Israel some of the earlier plagues just because. It was grace. It was just kindness from the Lord. In his kindness, he said, you're not going to have flies. No boils on your skin. No dead animals in your yard. No hail, no darkness. You don't have to do anything. I'm just going to give that to you. That's a gift. They just happened to live in the right place, in the land of Goshen. And they were a part of the right people, the right family, but for the final plague, kids, the people had to act. They had to do something. They had to fear the Lord and his judgment. They had to trust his promise, and they had to obey his commands, and they did. They sought refuge in the blood of the spotless lamb. Now, here's the deal. Being raised in a Christian home is like living in the land of Goshen when the plagues come. It's a blessing. It's a blessing to you as a child to be raised in a Christian home just because you didn't do anything to get it. God simply put you in a Christian family with Christian parents. And because of that, you are spared certain types of hard things. Like you have loving parents who care about you, who show you what God is like, who teach you the good news about Jesus, who bring you to church so that you can be sheltered by the people of God. It's a good thing and it's a blessing to be born into a Christian home. It's like living in the land of Goshen. But being born in the right place or into a certain family isn't enough to rescue you from the destroyer when he comes. When the angel of death comes, when God's ultimate judgment comes, you need more than to be born into a Christian family. You need more than to live in a certain place. You need to be protected by the blood of a spotless lamb. You need to fear the Lord and his judgment against sin. You need to have a living faith in Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And all of you can do this beginning right now. 
or continuing right now. You can fear God and trust him as the only one who can save you from his judgment. It's like when God was going to bring his total judgment on the world with the flood, by faith, Noah obeyed God, built an ark and sought refuge there and he was saved. When God sent the destroyer to strike the firstborn in Egypt, by faith, Moses and the people obeyed God, put the blood on the doorpost, and they were saved. And so for us, for you kids, when God's judgment someday comes on all human sin, and it will, the only thing that will matter is whether you've trusted in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus is the ark. Jesus is the blood on the doorpost. Trust in him and be saved. Second group, to those who aren't Christians. Okay, this is, I don't know how many there are in here. There may be none, but I'm going to say it anyway. Maybe you were born in Egypt and life has been hard. The last couple weeks, the last couple months, the last couple years, have been hard. Maybe you felt as though someone is out to get you. Maybe it's not a swarm of flies, frogs, and hail, but the affliction and hardship of life weighs heavy. You've lived in a darkness that you can actually feel. You feel the darkness. Whether it's sickness or, and pain, whether it's abuse or trauma, whether it's loss and suffering, whether it's your own sin and the consequences of your actions, life has just been hard and it feels like someone's out to get you. It's like you've been living in Egypt and the plagues are falling. And so here's my word to you from this passage. You don't have to stay in Egypt. You can come out. You don't have to be from a certain family. You don't have to be born in a certain place. All you have to do is fear the Lord, turn away from your sin, and seek refuge in the blood of Jesus. This church is a mixed multitude who have one fundamental thing in common. We're clinging to Jesus for dear life. You can come with us too. You're welcome to come with us too. And so I'm just plead with you, don't harden your heart like a certain Egyptian. Instead, be like that multitude who saw the works of God and said, we're going there. We believe. We're going with them. Now, finally, to the church, third group. There's an obvious connection here, right? Where do we land every week? The obvious connection for us as the people of God is between the Passover in Egypt and this table. God sent judgment on Egypt, one that included a total war on all human sin, including the sin of his people. And if he just sent the destroyer, everyone would have been lost. But he provided protection to those who trust him. And so his mercy mingled with his judgment. And then he established a meal to commemorate the event, both the judgment and the mercy. 
And so through this meal, through this Passover meal, the people relived and reenacted this fundamental event in their history, and it forged a link between the past, the present, and the future. Like, listen again to Exodus 12, 42. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generation. So you hear that? Every time they kept Passover, they looked back to that night in remembrance and they looked forward to God's mercy in the future. Passover for them was a memorial for them so that they didn't forget so that they could teach their children the works and ways of God. When people, when the kids ask, what's that all about? Why do we eat the nasty food that one night? What's up with the bitter herbs? Why are you making me eat bitter herbs again? Let me tell you what God did. Let me tell you about the works of God. But not only was it a memorial for them to remember, it was a memorial for God. It was a petition from the people of God to their Lord saying, Lord, don't forget us. Remember us. Remember your mercy. Remember your covenant. We are your people. Cover us still. And so too at this table. Each week, each week, we do this every week because of this. We want to connect our present to the past and to the future. Like the Passover, this meal is for the people of God. It's not for outsiders. If an outsider wants to join the covenant meal, he or she needs to put on the covenant sign. In the Old uh, Testament, that was circumcision. Today, it's faith and baptism. And so today, we look back to the mercy of God at the cross. We relive the Last Supper together so that we don't forget. And we ask God, Lord, remember your mercy. Remember the blood that was shed for us and be with us day by day, year by year until Jesus returns. As often as we eat the bread and drink the cup in the presence. We proclaim the Lord's death in the past until he comes in the future. And so come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for the Passover. Lord, you invaded history. You did wonders in Egypt escalating them, ramping them up, ramping them up, ramping them up, and then you launched a total war on human sin and you provided a way out. And so here today, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their unrighteousness, like Pharaoh, suppress the truth. That's what we do. And yet, Lord, And yet, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ by grace, we have been saved. And we remember it here at this table. We seek refuge in the blood of Jesus, covering us from all of our sin. So we remember, Lord, and we pray, Lord, remember, remember your mercy to us, your people. 
Through Christ we pray. Amen. Invite the pastors to come. His body, his body, his body is the true bread. Let us serve you.